This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Anthony Lacanina. Today's episode was brought to you by Audible.com. For a free 30-day trial of their service, head on over to audiblepodcast.com slash brainmatters. Thanks, Audible, for supporting our show. Hey, everyone. You're listening to Brain Matters. I'm Anthony Lacanina. And I'm Matt Davis. Back for the dual intro. Highly requested. We have received no requests, That's to my true. knowledge. But we have been receiving a lot of awesome iTunes reviews. We have. I don't know. The guys, It's you have really stepped up your game on the iTunes reviews within a couple weeks. Yeah. Dozen sprouted up. Maybe it was the SFN bump. I don't know. I don't know. That's yeah. the Society for Neuroscience. Yeah. Uh, we, Matt and Anthony, myself, were... <laughs> The two of us were at SFN in Chicago this year, and I had a great time. Uh, saw a lot of good friends, saw a lot of awesome science. It was fun meeting some of the fans there, too. Ran and bumped into a couple people. Oh. It was, uh, it was my mom. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, Thanks for all the reviews, people. They've been fantastic. Keep them coming. But I also wanted to, to give a shout out to you, Anthony. Oh. You did an awesome job repping Brain Matters on WBEZ Chicago. Yeah, man. Um, Home you're... of the number one podcast of all time, This American Life, of course. Oh, I, th- I was going to say Heritage Breeds. Ooh. Or, or Sasquatch, Sasquatch Chronicles. Chronicles. Our new Heritage Breeds we've left in the dust. Yeah. Yeah, it was. we got called up by uh, WBEZ Chicago, and I went and talked about what I study, fear memories. Yeah, and it was a Halloween episode, so... Spooky. It was it was very spooky. I scared some people with convinced, my knowledge. Exactly. You convinced a guy to be scared of his amygdala. I was proud of that, yeah. So you guys can check out the episode. We posted a link to the SoundCloud file on uh, brainpodcast.com. So. so check those out. Keep the reviews coming. We've, we've been also been on Twitter and Facebook. You know, We're doing a social media it. blitz. Won't stop. Can't stop. Won't stop. Indeed. So how about today's episode? Who did you sit down with? So today I got to speak with a professor at UCLA named Dr. Michael Fanzalo. And Dr. Fanzalo has been studying fear learning, which is what I do. So this was a really fun conversation for me to have. His work has been pretty seminal in the field in terms of how animals learn to associate contexts with negative associations like shocks. So how to become afraid of a place, which yeah. is kind of a very was at the t- it might seem today pretty obvious that places can evoke emotions. But in the 80s, there was a large debate and sort of not really established science about how an animal could possibly learn about a place. Yeah. Wait, what do you mean? So when you say place and context, like, can you give an example? A context is a physical space that sort of defines where you are and where things can happen. Yeah. A context is, is a, it's a pretty broad definition. Are we in a context right now? Every, you're always in a context. Whoa. You can't escape context. Oh my God. <laughs> it's kind of an oppressive thing to think about. Yeah. But contexts are, for example, if you're right now, we're in an office. Yes. So this is office context, meaning there are objects around here that are found in offices. There is the smell of an office. All of the sensory modalities Everything can be represented in a context. Exactly. So, and any of those things can can remind you that you're in that context. The way that people had originally been studying this before Fanzalo came along was about how discrete stimuli could evoke a response. The, the reason they did this was they wanted to make it as simple as possible. Yeah. So they wanted to understand how could an animal in a Pavlovian way 
you know, associate a ringing of a bell to like meat and saliva and then it would cause you to salivate. Yeah. So they wanted to simplify it. So it was tones. It was ringing of bells. It was lights. It was very important and and necessary, in fact, to probably start there. Yeah. But the thing is, we have to at some point realize that learning in the real world doesn't involve just discrete stimuli. There's yeah. these very complex kinds of stimuli that go on in the real world. Yeah. So this is kind of where context comes into play. One more thing that to just bring up about some of his work that's really important to know is he was the first one to really show that the hippocampus, which we take for granted as being a very important part of the brain for processing contextual information, by looking at how the animal was learning about context, he sort of realized the brain region that probably is maybe mediating this is an area that would be putting all the sensory modalities together, right? If it's if context involves all of this, what's, what part of the brain is receiving all of these? And that's where, you know, the hippocampus is does that. Maybe yeah. he asked the question, where is, is the hippocampus involved in that? And so a lot of his early works was pioneering this involvement of hippocampal function in processing contexts and really showed that there's this dissociation. But we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in the interview. Yeah, man. Uh, I'm totally jazzed for it. You got anything else to say before we get to it? All I want to say is perk up them cochlea. Boom. Baby. lived in Brooklyn my entire life, even through all of undergraduate school. I went to undergraduate institutions, Brooklyn College. It was there. I mean, I think I started out at Brooklyn College wanting to be a novelist. You know, I wasn't really science-oriented. Yeah, but did you write a lot? Uh, no, I got my first English composition course and hated it so much that I, I just changed my major immediately <laughs> after that and sort of puttered around, you know, lots of yeah. different things. And then, um, you know, I just took psychology because it seemed interesting and they had psychology really in two different things they had sort of the more social psych oriented and then the more neuroscience you know it wasn't called neuroscience like physiological physiological psych and learning theory and stuff and you know what really grabbed me was the idea that okay experience changes who you are and that is having an effect on your brain and changing the nature of physically of what you are just seemed so fascinating and that's sort of what eventually pulled me down that route really what happened was so then i was hanging out with other psych majors and really didn't know anything about how that goes on and somebody told me this girl told me well if you want to go on in psych you got to work in a lab so i just approached one of my yeah. professors and started working working okay. in the lab were you taking classes with this person or i took uh, yeah I was in a class because i was following up on this learning theory and this whole idea of you know how experience really changes who we are and we have this associative framework that you know molds and sculpts what we know and what we think that seemed so fascinating so he was sort of yeah. in a follow-up course and then I said oh, well you know can I work in your lab and he had both a human and an animal lab and it was a good situation because 
he hired me as a tech in his human lab to be a confederate in experiments, but mm-hmm. then as an independent researcher in his rat lab, and I was able to oh, cool. get hands-on experience with both of those. Okay, well, and what was that experience like? Was did you did you love it? Did it kind of? I loved it. That's what I, yeah. I you know did in a lot of ways. I think that saved me from it being a derelict undergraduate. <laughs> is you know now I had like much more reason to uh, yeah. to be involved, and you know my grades generally went up at that point and all because nice. it, you know it really did something really great grabbed me and, yeah. and and just the whole thought of like designing experiments and stuff was seemed to be really reinforcing how you can think of what are the right controls and all of that just always seemed to be fascinating to yeah. me and so I think it, it really was a niche that I, I fell into very luckily. Okay at that can you t- take us back to that time like what were the questions that you were asking what were some of the first results that made you yeah. all excited? So it was this question of do you need reinforcement to learn and the experiment that he, we, he had talked about this phenomenon of sensory preconditioning where you pair two neutral stimuli together like a tone and light which are meaningless and do you learn the association well you can't tell there's no reinforcement there there's no reason for if you especially if you dealing with animal subjects to know if they've learned anything so then you take one of them pair them with an unconditional stimulus that has meaning and then they react to the other one mm-hmm. and my first experiment my question was pretty silly question but it seemed interesting to me was well can you chain this out further can you do a higher order sensory preconditioning experiment and that was what I started working on as my independent project yeah in in the lab and then as the the tech in this more social psych part that he was doing was that I was a confederate in conversations and his idea was that you can give nonverbal cues as reinforcers and change people's opinions and things like that so we're involved in like nonverbal like uh, Like smiling and leaning leaning forward or leaning back and you know, averting your eyes and stuff. And, <laughs> was that and pretty fun to it, do? It was pretty funny. Yeah. To and, be how, like an and how people would react to it, too. I mean, it so profoundly affected people. As soon as you start, like, people say something and you start looking away and turning your head down, they just stop saying anything, yeah. right? You know? <laughs> and uh, so, so that was a lot of fun. And I yeah. made a little bit of money doing that. And, oh. um, and then in the whole uh, rat lab thing, that was, really drew me. And I really didn't know when I first started doing that which way I would go. And I was thinking about both ways. But then I think as time went on, I really realized to really get good, hard answers to the questions, animal models were the place you needed to do it because you can really control things. You can really get into the underpinnings and stuff. And that was really, I think, the magnet for me. And, and so by the time I was thinking about what, where to go to graduate school, I had already made that kind of choice. Yeah. Could you tell us where then you did graduate work? So I went total turnaround, right? So never leaving New York City. Yeah. I went to Seattle, Washington to work with Bob Bowles, who was like one of the heroes in the lab that I had been working on. So uh, so I went specifically to work with him, and that was a a great time in my life was doing that. Bowles was a different kind of mentor, and probably if any of his PhD students listen to this, they'll laugh. But it was very hands-off. Basically, I wouldn't tell him what I had done in the lab until I had what I thought was a pretty complete set of experiments. He would just let you do your thing. Yeah, just, and then uh, I, you'd tell him what you did. You know, you'd trap him one day and try to tell him what you did. Yeah. And he would immediately, like, with a razor's edge, rip you to shreds. Sure. And I'd walk out of there and say, okay, there are these other experiments that's, I need to do to, to answer those questions. I think that's the best kind of mentoring is the uh, you, is someone that can really tear you down, but you respect their opinion and you realize, okay, they're actually right. They have a really sharp ability to find all the yeah, weak points yeah, in what you're doing. Yeah. And, and the other thing I learned from that was he was sort of unbiased. I mean, certainly when you read his writings, you think, okay, this is sort of the, the approach, you know, his theoretical bent. But he had this ability to flip his head into whatever position you were trying to argue for, even if it was 
somebody you knew he didn't scientifically agree with flip into their mindset and know mm-hmm. how to come at you from this completely different mindset. Yeah. And so that was always great because he was always the devil's advocate for whatever position you were pushing. He became the perfect devil's advocate for the opposite position. Yeah. And so he really understood all different perspectives that way. I guess that's good to keep an open mind. Yeah, I mean, that also teaches you, besides sharpening up your research, you know, and being a tool that way, it also teaches you that, you know, there's a lot to be had from not having a theoretical bias, but having an open mind and yeah. sometimes just letting the data tell you what's there. You yeah, know, having, like, eliminating as much dogma as possible and just being yeah. available to, you know, ideas. I have students who, you know, graduate students, you know, and postdocs will come into the lab with a new data set and they're all depressed because it's like it's not what I thought it would be it's something different and you look at it and go wow that's really interesting you know it just the data is always telling you something so you should let it do that yeah I mean even the effect in this um, graduate work I was doing you know but I had been doing two very different sets of experiments one was I was just looking at animals after they got a, a single mild shock and I was doing some drug work you know with their reactions to that. And another, which had a history of, of learning fear conditioning and looking how the signals that they learned about would affect future learning and, and looking at um, you know, how they learned subsequent new learning. And the animals who had the prior Pavlovian experience, when they got this new learning, even when they weren't um, showing much of an effect, were way higher. They were reacting much more to what's going on, you know, and much more reactive to the shock than they should, given that I knew in both experiments that the, other, the new learning was exactly the same. Yeah. But that wasn't what those experiments were looking at. They were looking at blocking uh, associative learning effects. So you saw that effect. And right? I saw that, and it just sort of sat in my head for a long time. And yeah. then one day we just sort of went back to it, actually one of my postdocs, again, working on something totally different, came in and said, you know, look at this, this is really weird. And I said, oh yeah, that's there. I remember that from those studies. <laughs> and we started running off with that. I remember that <laughs> effect. That's funny. We've been talking a little bit about something called fear conditioning. Can you just tell us about what that is and why that was an attractive model to yeah. study learning? Yeah. So, you know, we all know about Pavlovian conditioning, where you ring a bell and that's associated with the delivery of food and the dog now will react differently to the bell you know it'll salivate it'll wag its tail all of those sorts of things to the bell so by pairing sort of a relatively meaningless thing the bell with something meaningful you get a change based on that associative learning you're doing the same thing in fear conditioning right except you have some stimulus often i'll use just a place but you can use a tone or a bell or whatever you want and you pair it with uh, an aversive stimulus we typically use an electric shock because it's very controllable it doesn't do any damage but it's certainly aversive and the animal not knowing what it is, it will condition a lot of fear to that stimulus. They'll learn within one trial that. Um, and so it's a it's important model for several reasons. One is that um, it the basis of anxiety disorders and a lot of mental illness is um, under anxiety underlies that. And this is really the process that I think underlies a lot of what happens in when people are anxious and anxiety disorders. And certainly that's proven out in treatments that are, are used. So it's important for the basis of those psychiatric problems. Um, it's also a beautiful model of learning and that it's a very strong form of learning and happens very, very rapidly. Um, why is that? Because fear is really, really important. It's how it's basically the system that evolved to defend you against predators, you know, and if you um, you know, if we're running around in life and we miss a feeding opportunity, it's not going to hurt us that much. Some of us, you know, would probably do better if we missed a meal once in a while. Um, you know, I'll still mate. 
Even if I made an op miss a mating opportunity, I'll have another opportunity to mate. But if I miss an opportunity to defend myself against a significant threat, I'm gone. I don't do give anything to the gene pool. So yeah. it's been highly selected for. And so it's a very powerful, very robust form of learning, which gives makes it a great model for trying to understand basic learning processes. So you know, you, if you want to learn the, the psychology of basic learning processes or associative learning processes, it's great. If you want to get to the, the neural underpinnings, it's a great model, and lots of people are using that now as a model. You said, why did it grab me? And it goes back to this idea how experience can change you. And you know, you can have this one little experience and now this powerful motivation, fear, is is there, that where it wasn't before. And there's this these profound effects on our behavior. I was less interested in like, in, at the time people who were doing cognitive psychology were doing like, how do you learn to pair nonsense syllables and things like that. That did, didn't have the same significance as something as powerful as something like fear. So that's what really, I think, suckered me into to wanting to, to understand this and study it more. And the fact that we had tools, it wasn't just philosophy, but you had tools to really dissect what was going on, yeah. made it so, uh, you know, so wonderful and so fascinating to me. So you have a really significant contribution to understanding how things like just the context itself can be a cue yeah. or could you tell us about those experiments and maybe what were you thinking at the time that made that motivation to think about that <laughs> there, there dial was, that in there were several reasons um, that brought me into it at the time that I started graduate school was just after a um, little few years after uh, this very important model of Pavlovian conditioning by Raskol and Wagner and Raskol and Wagner sort of if you take that model, it says the context does very, very important things to normal fear conditioning to an explicit cue. And so I was interested in part because of that, because um, nobody really directly looked at context or understood that. But even more so was my thought in, you know, one of the things we do in science is to learn something, we start with a simplified preparation. And if you think about it, context conditioning is the simplest Pavlovian preparation because you need a US and you need a CS. But if you do, let's say, conditioning with a bell or a tone or whatever, you still have a context there. So the context is always there. We know from the Rascola Wagner model that it's important because it's going to interact with how you learn about the cue. But the context is always there. And doing context conditioning is a simpler preparation than doing auditory fear conditioning because you've removed something. So my thought was, well, let's try to understand this simple, simplified process and understand that first. Yeah. And the more I experienced that I ran, the more I realized, wow, we don't understand this. This is far more complicated than we think. And I was always, you know, let's, let me focus on this until I fully understand that just because here's a simplified preparation that we know is going to be the basis of and interact with anything more complex. And, you know, initially, I know, remember a, a talk that I gave and my PhD advisor saying something like, yeah, you know, you have um, uh, Vanslow and this other person was doing similar, not similar experiments, but also worried about context in, this, in the same lab as I, uh, Mark Bounton. Um, he goes, yeah, Vanslow and Bounton, they just find that the context acts as a CS. Terrible. Because <laughs> he wanted the context to do something else. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was a little hurt by that. <laughs> but as always to his credit, several years later, I started to find, hey, context are doing things that are fundamentally different yeah. um, from what happens with uh, an explicit CS. And we were finding really some different rules yeah, for, for, for context conditioning. Um, one of the most fundamental ones is that 
a basic rule in, again, simplest Pavlovian conditioning is that the onset of your CS to the onset of your US, so the onset of the bell to the onset of the food or the onset of the tone to the onset of the shock is a critical variable for, for conditioning. It has to be some length, it shouldn't be simultaneous, but once it's not simultaneous, that the, the CS, the signal comes on first before the US, you should get really good conditioning. And as that gets longer, you should get less and less and less conditioning. Yeah. And when we started for very different reasons, to look at context conditioning and manipulate that, we found that it was totally the opposite. That the longer they had before the US, the better they conditioned. Mm -hmm. So here's a fundamental, you know, basic principles thing um, for Pavlovian conditioning. You pick up the famous textbooks like Macintosh's textbook and he shows you a bunch of examples of that. But this is a general rule. And it is a general rule from, um, you know, uh, eye blink conditioning to taste aversion conditioning. It has different time scales, but that basic rule is if that interval gets long, you start to lose conditioning, okay? And here we found something that goes in the opposite direction. And even for fear conditioning, you know, the, soon, the shorter the interval between tone and shock, as long as they're not simultaneous, the tone has some predictive stuff, the stronger conditioning is. And yet for context, it flips completely yeah. around. So something different was happening. Yeah. And so the idea is what's, what's happening and then that sort of keyed me into thinking about what are the unique features what do you have to do different from a context right and um, i don't know if you want me to keep because sure, no, yeah. i can talk about this a lot yeah no i'd love yeah you're the, you're the guy and and so so if you think about what's happening with a, with normal conditioning a tone right if tone turns on i know it's on and i know and then the shock occurs and those things are contiguous and it there's no doubt that that yeah. tone occurred and that there's one specific stimulus that got nicely paired. And the more of the those, US. then the better to Exactly, right? Yeah. right. And if you make it too long, the CS is losing its predictive value, right? So you get a loss. With context, it's a little different because the context is made up of lots and lots and lots and lots of features. Yeah. And so if you think about that, you know, when I'm in this room and I'm looking over there, it's very different than if I'm over there or what perspective I'm taking. The sounds are different. The smells might be different. Certainly what I'm seeing is different. My feel for the structure of the room is different. And so it's, you know, if you think about any of those cues, if I presented them all of single cues and presented a U.S., well, you know, this microphone that I'm looking at right now, I've probably turned away and I'm not looking at it. If I got a shock, was I looking at it at the time? Did I have multiple presentations? It's not going to, it's going to wash out. Yeah. Other cues that I'm seeing all the time have been there for maybe quite a while and they're not going to be good predictors. So the, to learn about those features of the context is going to be really, really difficult. So what the idea is what happens is that when I have a time to explore, then I begin to a, a synthetic process of putting all these features together and it forms a, a unified representation. Mm. And once I have that unified representation, then it can act as a strong stimulus. It overcomes the problem that all the features have and that that's there. Now, whatever happens, I know what happened in this room. Yeah. Okay. And so that's, and we really did a behavioral analysis of that. Yeah. And then it's starting to think about what, um, you know, brain regions are going to do that well where what brain regions are going to really start to put together features together and that would be the hippocampus right was, yeah. and that's what sort of led to the thinking thinking about the hippocampus but it did start from behavioral work and that's one thing i, I yeah. sort of if i can get a message out there is that it's really important to understand the behavior um you know, that you're working with. Yeah. And especially if it's a new behavior, to really categorize and, and characterize and say what's going on because it's 
behaviors, learning and behavior are not intuitive things. And the brain and the animal may be doing something completely different than you intuitively think it's doing. Yeah. And, um, and you really have to understand that first before you can go in, into an analysis and have a rich understanding of the behavior. People, often people think nowadays, oh, a behavioral characterization is I make a hippocampal lesion or not and see if it affects the behavior. That's not, that's, you're starting to get it, trying to get at the neural mechanisms, but you should enter that into when you have a good understanding of the behavior. Yeah. So with this, these context learning things, I did a lot of work on context conditioning before I ever went into neural mechanisms. If you look at the water maze and other famous preparation people used for hippocampal learning, you know, Richard Marsh didn't first do a hippocampal lesion, right? That's what everybody remembers and cites. Yeah. But Richard Marsh did a very uh, careful characterization of what's happening in the water maze and how it definitely is spatial cues and extra maze cues that are all guiding this behavior. No physiology whatsoever, yeah. right? Just really understanding the behavior. And only then did he go and look up, say, what, what is the hippocampus? Do you think that that would, like, if you're in an extremely familiar place, you think learning would progress differently than still a new place that you've, you, maybe you've sampled all the elements, but it hasn't, I don't know, or entered some sort of realm of like the I think you learn about it faster, right? So, yeah. and we learn about things faster in two ways. One is that you, since you have that representation, it, you know, your bedroom for you is a salient thing. Yeah. And if something happens there, that's going to be, you okay. know, very, very memorable. If you're in an earthquake, which, you know, in L.A., we have yeah. from time to time. <laughs> um, you know, if you're in the, your bedroom, yeah. exactly what happens is going to be very salient. If you're out somewhere novel, I bet you you, would, you might still have the trauma experience, but you would remember the specifics yeah. of what, what happened, I think, less well. And then the other thing is that, you know, my research is sort of like you change the valence of the context, right? It's, it's neutral. It's something that's not bad. And then suddenly it becomes bad and you learn that better. Then there's another thing is what happens when you add a new feature? in there. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, Richard Morris's work with Schema shows that if you really learn this well, this layout well, then taking something new and adding to it is relatively easy. I see. Right? You don't even yeah. need to have a campus for that, right? Yeah. Um, because you have this well-worked-out schema or framework because you, you, you know that particular. So I think, yes, the rules of learning change with, with those kind of things. I don't think that when it's a simple stimuli, those processes aren't engaged. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the problem that we have is that, you know, we're normally dealing with very complex stimuli. And how you get you know, simple LTP for very simple sorts of things, that's not such a big problem for the brain. But dealing with complexity and to function in the world, we have to deal with complexity. We've had to evolve systems that allow you to deal with, with that. Yeah. There's very few things that we have in the real world are, are very simple tones coming on yeah. and off, you know, exactly in 30 <laughs> seconds and things like that. Would you, would you argue then that context conditioning also is a better form of mimicking things like the real world types of yeah. stressful events? Again, right? everything happens in a context, yeah. right? You know, and we know that contexts are going to interact with any learning that you have. That goes back to that Raskola-Wagner thing that I talked about earlier. And so, yes, I mean, it's, it's, it's fundamentally there. It's always there, even if, you know, people don't want to necessarily think about it because, you know, they, well, I'm looking at these other cues, but you always have to worry what's happening with the context, right? That's a yeah. very fundamental part of, of what's going on in any learning experience. Could you tell us then about after Bull's lab, did you start your own lab after that or what was the next move for you? Yeah, and you know, I so Bowles is very old school and he didn't really believe in postdocs. He thought that the only reason you did a postdoc was because you couldn't get a real job. <laughs> Tell that, tell that to all the people, all and, the postdocs now. And I, I think this is, you know, he was wrong about several things. And I think that was, was one of them. I probably should have done a postdoc. But I took an assistant professorship at this um, small place and um, 
And really, after a year, decided that I didn't want to be there, and then yeah. went and got another academic job. So I never okay. did a postdoc. I went right into a, an academic position. Okay, so you moved from one school that's really quickly to another, to another. and then did you stay there? I then, stayed yeah. there. And, uh, then I went to Dartmouth, and I stayed there for seven years, yeah. and I, um, I really liked it. You know, I had a great time. I could have stayed there my whole life. But then UCLA tried to recruit me, and it was actually, a, a, at the time, a very tough decision. You know, should I stay? Lots of things. I love my colleagues there. I enjoyed the, the region and, and all of that. But there are other things about, um, you know, being able to have connections with people who are doing other sorts of things, like you know, more neural uh, and more molecular kinds of things, and chance for having a larger lab and all of that, that yeah. drew me, you know, drew me to, to UCLA. And so, um, so I went there and it took me a few years to realize that I actually made the right decision. Okay. Um, and all, and things started to get into Did it? Oh yeah. What was that? What was that? Were you like, I, once you moved, were you like, oh shoot, I should have like So I'm a little, stayed, yeah. I'm a little OCD and, yeah. um, what I, when I really had a difficult decision, so I was making Excel spreadsheets and putting all the different factors. You know, weather would be better here, cost of living is better there. You know, all these different factors and all, and then putting weights, beta weights, in them to come out <laughs> with where I should go. And of course, you twist them one way and you get one yeah. thing, twist them another way to another thing. And um, did it land up at UCLA? And it, and it ended up at UCLA after I did all of this, huh. and then like within probably a few weeks maybe a month of being there I realized that all of that was just stupid <laughs> the things because I think what ended up being because I could tweak the model one way or another what did you not predict well it wasn't so much not predicting I sort of said to myself you know these factors aren't going to be that important oh, okay. um, you yeah you know you're worried about traffic you know, that's not going to be so important weather that's not a big deal you know which one one has the favor the other has the opposite um, and then when I got there I realized wow these were way bigger factors than I ever imagined the they would be. Are, yeah be so, so my all my uh, my fiddling with Excel really wasn't useful but I did end up I think making the right decision I've okay. been at UCLA uh, since then yeah. and I think you know and it's things that I didn't really have the perception of I think the thing about UCLA is it's incredibly collaborative kind of thing everybody kind of wants to collaborate everybody kind of works together there are no barriers between the college which is where my main appointment is and the med school there are no barriers between departments we have seminars people from all different departments always participate in them and you know students always feel free to move between labs and go into a lab and use equipment for something else or learn a technique and those things are just so important for research now And, and it's that wonderful thing you know and it's synergized by the weather, right? You know, I have to go to a meeting over the med school, which is a 10-minute walk. In New Hampshire, I might not want to, in the middle of winter, I might not want a 10-minute walk. And at UCLA, it's, wow, I can get out now for 10 minutes. You know, it's, okay, I'm going. Can you take us to some particularly exciting moments? I like to hear about some findings that then suddenly turned around and became very important. The one, I think, that had the most profound impact was, based on the stuff I had been doing, I had sort of this idea of a stick and box model. And the stick and box model would be like, you know, there's some point here where plasticity occurs to allow the learning, and then this rest of it was all regulating that plasticity, which really had been my my work up until that point, but a lot of it was done with opioids regulating fear conditioning and all. But there should be a a place where that where you get plasticity occurring. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really know where that place, but I was thinking of, you know, like Kandel's work, which I knew at the time. You know, something like that, obviously, but, you know, it's so not what's going node, on. Some here. node in the brain that yeah. picked that all. 
And I went to a talk, which is, again, I think the thing about UCLA, I went to a talk by Gary Lynch, who's just down the road at Irvine. And this is when he had first done the work showing that APV um, with Richard Morris had blocked the water maze. I don't even know if it was published yet, but he talked about that work. And I said, wow, that could be, um, you know, that could be something we could use to see if it's going on in our preparation. So I mentioned that to my graduate student, Gene Sakim, actually, who um, said, well, I think Frank Krasny has some of that in his lab. Frank was a person who worked with crayfish. Yeah. And um, so he went and stole some from Frank's lab. <laughs> we tried it and we discovered, yes, that this NMDA antagonist blocked fear conditioning and that, you know, started that whole path of work yeah. we had done there. You know, initially we thought because of our other work that the effect we had seen on context was going to be amygdala. But in fact, we ended up realizing that the context effects you're seeing um, at that point, amygdala is really important as well, but were hippocampal yeah. effects. And, and that helped. Um, us sort of get into this whole context hippocampus kind of learning and um, and look at looked at that so you know eventually it was yeah there are locations but of course not just one location um, there are two and yeah. if you look at our first NMDA antagonist paper the APV paper we actually say well we because we gave it ICV so we're getting figuring we're getting it everywhere in the brain we actually have a wrong statement in our discussion there which is we attributed those effects to probably the amygdala mm. when it all breaks loose, the effects we were seeing at that point with the ICB administration were purely hippocampal. Yeah. And eventually we, we worked that out and figured oh, there's other aspects of the plasticity for fear conditioning that are critical of NMDA receptors in the amygdala, but that the hippocampal part is really this context learning that requires NMDA receptors there. So again, it was a dissociation of these two different things, learning about the context and then learning about the valence of the context. So the message is just walk into other people's labs and steal, and their, steal stuff. their stuff and then yeah. you're good. Have. Yeah, Frank. Frank now knows. I don't know when I admitted um, <laughs> that we actually did that, but uh, he, Frank's a good guy. So. Yeah, great. Okay, good. Yeah. Did you ever meet resistance from people about that? Oh yeah. Oh man, you should see. <laughs> I mean, I in, in the early days, I mean, there was like, you know, people want, didn't want, they just said, this is not, contexts are uncontrollable. People didn't think that that was real, how you should do conditioning. They don't, didn't like the idea yeah, so. of, of, of contexts. It must feel vindicated now if you go, if you PubMed context it's crazy. conditioning. Yeah, that's a little scary too, right? There's so many people people are doing that. You know, before like, it was yeah. life was relatively easy. You knew everybody who was doing fear conditioning, let alone yeah. everybody who was doing context conditioning. There's not any at all, and not that many doing fear conditioning. Of course, yeah. now it's like it's it's off the hinges. Right? Yeah, sure. Can we relate some of this back to models of PTSD? Because some of your current work has been focused on that. So yeah, yeah. So I think there are two critical components. You know, one is standard associative fear conditioning, which certainly makes a contribution. And that what I think most of the people who are doing anxiety disorders, preclinical anxiety disorders sort of work are, are focused on fear conditioning. And a very important part of that. But there's this other component that's just caused by the stress that I think is a long-term sensitization that changes how the amygdala responds to things, changes the basic machinery for fear conditioning so that it's, it's hyperreactive, and that there's this other component. People have talked about stress sensitization in the past. I think coming from a fear conditioning perspective, I had the idea of I can use a stress here with using something like shock that's fully titratable. I can quantify it very nicely, have yeah. very good control over it. And that's what I think coming from this more, this fear conditioning 
approach where we had very defined conditional responses that we looked at gave me a lot of power to take the, the, the stress effects and see where yeah. they, were, they were going. I know that other people, right, to stress animals, they put them in very stressful scenarios, but it's hard to determine what the amount of stress that they're receiving can be. Very- How does stress A, like restraint stress, compare to stress B, like swim stress? Yeah. You know, and, and what parameters do you change and all? Well, in it, with something like shock, it's all very precisely Define you, you can take the same amount of shock and spread it over multiple sessions, single sessions, you know, yeah. um, all of those kinds of things. You can titrate exactly the number. We know from prior work that people have done that things like fear scale to these pe- parameters very, very nicely, very, very linearly. So, um, so you have that as a as a really nice tool. And I think mm-hmm. coming from these. Combining these two perspectives gave me some traction. So I think there is this, this stress sensitization that's non-associative. It's we don't really have ways of addressing it at at this point. Um, I I think you know, there there'll be approaches, and that's what we're working on quite a bit now, is to say you know how can we reverse those kinds of effects. Yeah. Um, in the associative part, we do have cognitive behavior therapy, extinction-based therapies, which work on those components. They're not as robust as we would like them to be, but there's a lot of work, important work being done now. How do we make those things more robust? And I think you're going to have to have to fully treat anxiety disorders. You're going to have, especially like PTSD, you're going to have to combine those yeah. type of things. What you said, stress-enhanced sensitization, is that having some sort of stressful event. Exactly. Ex- ex- exaggerated fear. Exactly. So if you've had this stronger stress in the past, now something that's very mildly stressful, so stressful that you wouldn't even be able to detect much of a reaction to, maybe just a startle reaction, maybe it's a, a, a mild electric shock that would never cause fear conditioning, now does. It's like the whole gain on the amygdala has changed. Yeah. And now you're just super reactive to these things. And it's just sitting there, you know, after this traumatic stress, the amygdala is sitting there, it's been physically changed, and it's, you know, sitting there waiting for something to happen. And when even something mild happens, yeah. you, your reactions are no longer proportional to the threat. And that's one thing, fear is a good thing, right? We always think of fear as always being bad. But as I said at the beginning, fear is how we defend ourselves. Yeah. But we want fear to be proportional to the threat. If it's some, you know, if a bee comes in here, it's good for me to be a little you know, wary of, of where that bee but is. A bear but, I, if, but you know, I don't want to jump onto the desk and start screaming, right? But if it's a bear, yeah, <laughs> do, you know, jump out the window, do something, right? Something yeah. much more dramatic. And so you want to scale your fear to the degree of threat. Yeah. And what we have in something like post-traumatic stress is that because of this prior um, you know, exposure to a traumatic stressor, now the machinery is sitting there at a totally different point where the reactions are no longer adaptive because they're completely disproportionate. And the, and the unfortunate thing is it's very long-lasting, it, right? It's, in it's our nice. hands, it doesn't go away. So, you know, we yeah. looked three months um, and there was no reduction even three months after the stress. It's exactly like the stress yeah. that happened the other day. So I can see And that's three months in a, a rat, yeah. right, which is, you know, we have every reason to believe that this is going, going to be a, a permanent kind of thing. Now the question is that you've been addressing, right? Is like, okay, what are the mechanisms that cause that, and is there any exactly. way that we can undo exactly. that? So what what you want is you don't want to you don't want to get rid of the amygdala. It does very essential things for you, but you want to bring it back so it's working within the normal range and not this, you know, uh, pushed over to the extreme kind of range. Yeah. Do you have any evidence right now of what are potential ways that we could? treat that problem. We're, we're looking into that. We, we're starting to figure out what the protein changes are there and um, we start to have you know evidence that if we can reverse those changes that we can bring things back. Cool.
do you have any hobbies or other pursuits that you like to do uh, sort of like outside of uh, science? Yeah, two, I guess, are my main ones. The, the one is fishing, and I love love fishing. Yeah. And the other is wine, good, yeah. good red wine. <laughs> Together? I have, I probably spend more time on the red wine than I should and less time on the fishing than I should. <laughs> so fishing, you know, is harder to get the, the opportunities to do that. But, yeah. uh, but, I, but I really love that for some reason. Ever since I was a kid, I just... I just love that as a sport, so that's a big thing. Nice. Fine red wine is another thing that I enjoy tremendously. So you're near a good location for that? I am, I am. Yeah, it's a, it's a great place. Nice. Great place. Do you have wine. any recommendations of places we should, our listeners should oh, go I, to? Oh, I will to. get into trouble if I give you some <laughs> lists of my favorites. So I am endowed by um, the Stadlin family, who owns a beautiful winery in Napa and um, once a year they have a music festival to benefit research on uh, mental um, mental uh, disorders and they have really really great wine yeah and I can't really afford it except when they give it to me (laughs) so so I'm going to recommend theirs it's tremendous wine there awesome uh, I'll put in a a plug for them because they really are trying to do great stuff to support um, mental health research that's great um, you know they're great people for, awesome. for doing that. And then also fishing locations. Do you have any, tell us a big fish story. You oh, have to. So I'll tell you one. <laughs> so this is one that just happened. We're up in, uh, fishing on the Columbia River with a, with a guide and we're fishing for salmon. And, um, you know, I hooked a, a fish and I knew this was a big fish. All fishermen really say, oh, this is a big fish. This and I think, you know, for a couple minutes there, I knew it was much bigger than anything we had hooked and it was really nice and then all of a sudden the fish goes crazy mm-hmm. and I say you know to the guy this is a really big fish and he just laughs and he goes no a seal took it and <laughs> I'm fighting with this seal eventually I actually get the seal comes up on the surface kind of looks on me it's like a 500 pound this huge giant seal just looking at me holding this beautiful big king salmon in, in his mouth hand. not in his mouth oh. actually he had He's it there it like a I was holding it like that and not letting it go <laughs> And um, eventually, I did land the salmon, got it away from the seal. It was a, a king salmon, which we weren't allowed to keep at that at that point. So we released it. It was healthy. We saved it from the seal. Yeah, that fish managed to avoid two predators, so its amygdala was probably working pretty well nice. that day. And uh, so that's my most recent uh, fishing story. Awesome. Well, good tie of, of all that together. So. Uh, well, Michael, thank you so much for talking sure, to us. Sure, you're today. welcome. Good. I appreciate it. Hot. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Today's episode of Brain Matters was sponsored by Audible.com. Audible is a leading provider of audiobooks with over 180,000 downloadable titles from all genres you can think of. For Brain Matters listeners, Audible is providing a free 30 day trial to try out their service. For a book recommendation, Why not check out Dr. Wendy Suzuki's book, Healthy Brain, Happy Life, a personal program to activate your brain and do everything better. This book is all about how your brain seems to work much better when you exercise, and there's no better way to read a book and exercise at the same time than with an audiobook. So head on over to audiblepodcast.com slash brain matters. That's audiblepodcast.com slash brain matters and pick up your free 30-day trial. And when you're done doing that, Check out our interview with Dr. Suzuki from last year on our website (laughs) or iTunes or however you listen to this show. 
The music on today's episode was by Steve Barris, and you're hearing a track right now from the Steve Martin album, and I'll just let you guess what that's all about. We'll send a link to his music on our Twitter, and it'll be in the episode description. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. Golden boy wants to be a popper. Says, let me try out those with nothing to offer. He sends you once a home in the dumpster with the option of returning to a life of comfort. Oh. Penetrating gaze, but he still lets out his fear in frightening ways.